like talking to lawyers sometimes. It gives me insights into the areas I should worry about a little bit. And there's two topics I wanted to talk about today. Intellectual property for small businesses, as well as the impact of AI. Stephen Weigler joins me today on this bonus episode of The Business of Tech. Alinea Partners is your sales readiness assessment company. They identify untapped opportunities in offer development, managed services, and customer experience. They pioneered the secret shopper in the IT channel, and they want to help you get your provider going with instant value and momentum. Contact them at alinea-partners.com. That's A-L-I-N-E-A-partners.com. And remember, Profit is not something to add at the end. It's something to plan for in the beginning. Tell them Dave sent you. So I, I got to start with something that, that you know you focused a lot of time on, and, and that's intellectual property and intellectual property law. I'm kind of intrigued to get your sense because in this space, oftentimes, you know, MSPs, value-added resellers are delivering technology services, and they may not think that their own business has a lot of IP there. What do you define as the valuable IP that's worth protecting in a services business like this? I always look at businesses, especially service businesses, as what what does that business think the value of their company is? And if they, they're like, well, it, it could be a cost um, proposition. It could be a, we do it in a more platform-oriented approach um, that we have better relationships with with our vendors, such as, you know, Microsoft or something. There, there's a whole bunch of reasons that a services business is going to be um, have a competitive advantage. And if you don't think you have a competitive advantage, then we should have a different discussion, which is, why are you around? Um, it's just not a particularly entrepreneurial thought, just thinking, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a, um, a business, but I, I have no um, intrinsic uh, value. And so we, the idea is to really look at what are the aspects of your business that are um, making you stand out from others. So one is, um, there's this concept of, of trademark, um, which is your whole brand and what it means. So when you close your eyes and you think about Microsoft, well, you can picture the products they have. You can picture the logo. You can picture the customer experience, which is, you know, at the consumer levels next to none. But the the point is, or even better, Apple. Like think about the whole brand experience. And so every services business is about customer experience. And so that's that customer experience is your brand. And as an IP attorney, what I'm trying to do is distill the aspects of your brand that are protectable that you want to make sure that no one else takes. So for Apple, for example, it's the Apple. It's like you see that Apple um, with the bite out of it, and that's been since I've been in fifth grade. Um, you know that it's Apple computers. What's And the other things are, well, your processes and procedures might be something that's unique, and you might want to copyright that. You might have a unique code um, sequence that you that's custom coded or source code that you're using that is worthy of, of some co- um, copyright protection. Um, there's something called a business process patent. Um, that's really hard to come by, but it's it's really like, can you get a computer to do a unique 
um, sequence of things that can be considered an invention that could be looked at. So anyway, you stack the, and then also the most important for a services business is there's a reason the customer is calling you as opposed to someone else. And that is most likely a combination of your brand, meaning they trust your, that the customer experience is going to be good and that you have some internal things that you do very well in operations. And that's called trade secret. How you guys, um, meaning the services company gets from point A to point B efficiently and makes money. And you have to protect that against potential infringement from employees and uh, independent contractors. And so there's, you, you create a, through an employment manual or through other means, you can create what's called trade secret protection. A lot of the listeners that, that have been listening to, to your examples, particularly because the examples, a lot of them are, are big companies, right? And so immediately they're thinking that, you know, this is a company with a lot of assets. I can see the very unique na nature. But if a company is really is small, right? And so, so they, they're, you know, they're, they, in the same way that they view as a craftsman knows their, their trade and they've got their way of doing it, but their resources are much more finite and much more small. How do you, how do you guide them when they're looking at it from the perspective of sort of small, where they're super price sensitive in this space? Ultimately, you might want to sell the business. You might want to, um, and you're going to want to, you know, protect your, your, uh, your play against competitors. And so it's a very basic, getting a trademark is a very basic process. Um, it's, we have a, a, a program called Total TM. You have to search the marketplace to see if there, anyone else has been using that mark. Well, if someone else has been using that mark, you have potential defensive issues, like meaning you might get sued someday. So if you're using Apple and you might have a computer services business, well, I have a feeling Apple's gonna figure out you have it. And if you're not licensed to use it, you're going to get a cease and desist letter. Um, so we search it to see defensively, and then we we uh, file the trademark and and prosecute it. The time it takes a long time, but the cost is under. It's like a, you know a thousand dollars. It's really not a, a very expensive process. It's less than you know some of my carpet cleaning examples. Um, so that's that's um, the basics are very easy to come by. And so um, copywriting your um, processes and procedures, um, number one, no one's ever going to see those. And you have copyright on them in case, like, for example, an employer um, steals them. Well, you have copyright. They've cre created a copyright violation, and your whole total spend is $500. And so you're really, like, you're looking at low-price um, items. You're just doing it, but you're doing the same thing that large organizations do, just at a much smaller scale. The beautiful thing about protecting intellectual property is it's, it's, um, it's an even playing field. It's, it's really like there's government fees, there's very little attorney cost, and if you go through the process and protect it, you can build a wall the size of your business to protect yourself. As we, you brought up copyright, I want to use that to transition, actually, to talk about another space that we as technologists have been exploring a lot, and that's AI right now, particularly with as much buzz as going around with generative AI. But we can see a lot of uses where this is going to be, be important for providers. You know, Microsoft is going to be rolling out Copilot across the platform to allow users to be creative, more creative with AI technologies. You can go right to technologies like ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion and AI and generate such give us a give us a little bit of the lay of the land as it relates you know copyright oh and ai right now dave I, I am blown away at this recent advent of ai it came in at like a 
like a hurricane. Um, and it's only like the concept, at least from the legal field, it was like two months ago, I sat in on a, um, like a, a lawyer talk and it was like, well, this isn't, this isn't something we have to deal with today is what the, the, the experts were saying. A month later, a, attorneys are using it to write briefs and getting in trouble because the briefs weren't right. And I mean, they were citing things the AI made up on sites that that's really bad. Like you have to be a really bad attorney to, to trust AI to write your brief. But anyway, I mean, that's, that's a really bad move. So anyway, this is coming in in a storm. So here's the situation, everyone. AI didn't create itself. It was created by scanning by really smart um, computer sciences, scanning a lot of copyrighted material. Because most, if you look at most books, most sources of information, the Encyclopedia Britannica, Wikipedia, uh, which is somewhat protected, but you go on and on and on, those are all, there's places that are, um, unless they're government resources, um, they're, they're mostly copyrighted. And so it's scanning all this data and then pulling from it and, and um, twisting and turning it and cranking it out in a form that the user wants. How that happens um, is really what the computer science is. What are the ramifications to someone using it and using copyrighted work that was used to create the AI that you're using to, say, promote a, a good or a service or a product? That's a really super loaded issue that hasn't been settled by the courts. My interpretation of it, based on this latest Andy Warhol case, um, the Supreme Court takes copyright very seriously. And so as much as I know, especially in computer sciences, especially in technology, there's a copyleft movement. People don't love the concept of copyright. Um, copyright protects original works of art, including the, the code that's been cranked out. If it's been copyrighted, if someone, it's tangible, meaning it's, it's on written, that's tangible, you can, and it's a work of art. It's, it's lit, literature or, or um, um, yeah, literature. So that would open your, that use up to a copyright claim. And the courts have yet to test it. So what do you do? Um, because I, I think it, if, it, if it were, I were listening to this, I'd be like, well, thanks, Steve. But I'm not going to write out my own content when there's this out there just because you're saying that there's some theoretical copyright claim. And so I would just, I would really, there's certain um, things that you're going to hold out to the general, your general um, audience, which is, a lot of marketing material. So say if you're using it for marketing, like I want to explain why I'm the best value-added reseller. And you type, how, how can you be the best value-added reseller? And then you stick it into a paragraph in your marketing literature. Well, you might want to just Google and check that, that the way you're doing it, check some of the key phrases, and that the way you're doing it haven't been used before under copyright. And that's, that's I think, where we are on the subject. It's it's really new and it's really like I'm so fascinated by it, but I don't, you know, it's not like I have a court opinion or something to um to focus on. It's interesting. I was I was talking with a colleague recently and he said when when lawyers are confused and befuddled over a new technology, you know it's disruptive. 
And it's because you can actually, by that framework, allows us to know that something is truly disruptive to previous frameworks when the lawyers can't can't wrap their heads around it. It's well, think about it. I mean, the next thing is going to be in code. Like you're going to be able to say, give um, give me some string code that that focuses on on um, um, tying my my code together. And what's where'd that code come from? Like where are they pulling it from? proprietary sources are they pulling it we don't know and and that's so you have to kind of trust your source and the thing about code that makes it really difficult and this is something to think about for protection too is that you can file copyright for code without actually showing the code so you can show the first 10 pages of the code and the last 10 pages of the code to the copyright office you can have like a phone book um that sounds old fashioned, but a, a huge amount of of um, papers in between it, and that could be um, you don't know what's been copyrighted or not because it, it's trade secret code, and so it's just it is a Pandora's box, and so I just would encourage listeners to be really careful to read up on it, and you know it. It I use when I'm looking for a subject to talk about, I, I use AI to see what's what other people are thinking about it and then i put my own spin on it and so i think you know the only way that humans are gonna carry their weight is to put to put into it only things that humans can do so what's your take on something like what adobe is doing with firefly they're 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 coming out and they're saying we're only training these models on materials that we own and thus we're going to indemnify use that anything anything that you generate from this is original or based on items that you are licensed to use. What's your take on on that strategy in the market? I don't think any you know, I that's not my client base. Like no one, no one can afford that. So that's a, a big play. I think it's interesting. But you know, it's it's just like anything else. It's like, um, in a way, they're creating their own like Betamax or something. Like uh, it's their own system. And so, will that system stay? Will that will that um, stand the test of time or will everyone be, you know, VHS? So last year I wanted to, to walk a little bit through is you've got some specific thoughts on the way to protect SaaS models with both a combination of IP and, and business strategy. Give me a little bit of insight in the way that you, you think things are a little different in the SaaS world. I love SaaS. Like, I think it's, it's an amazing business model. Um, so I think it's, I think in the SaaS model, what really is important is is um, a lot on the um, user interface, and so as far as protection. And so, what what's important is that um, you that every aspect in that user interface, because a lot of times you're not going to own the necessarily own the backend. Um, you're not going to own the um, the database. That's going to be like a you know, a SQL server or something. Um, you're not going to own the, um, a, in other words, you're piecing a lot of the backend together through subscription models and licenses to get it. And so really what you own is, a, is and this is, you know, this is not like what Apple would do, but this is what most SaaS models of, of um, probably the people that are listening um, look at. Like it's, it's, you piece together licenses on the backend and then on the front end, it's all your own creative spin. So, for example, I use a legal product called Clio. Well, it's all about that they took what's already been invented and do it for for law. So the database is not like they've created their own unique database or using 
uh, a, probably a Microsoft product or something for that database. So on the front end, you know, it's a really what is the unique look and feel of that of that SaaS model? What are the terms of use and service of the that SaaS model? And um, how can we really protect that um, and create a, a viable subscription model um, that you know, which it, it, on the business side involves pricing, it involves um, customer recognition, it involves getting up on the you know Google Analytics and and web pages on the protection it involves um making sure a lot of people take you know terms of service terms of use and they just cut and paste it like um and privacy policies and then they don't adhere to it because they never read it they took it off someone else's website so really understanding software as a service means software as a service that's a service model and so you're providing a service and you have to understand what services you're providing and what legal liabilities you have for that and between that and like really customizing the customer experience or UI, which is, again, something that's copyrightable, it can be trademarkable, um, you can really excel at that, that SaaS model. Um, and I can guarantee you that SaaS models are very sexy in the M&A market, meaning um, everyone likes up subscription models. And so that, that you can grow um, for a very little incremental cost. And you really have to have a combination of your code put together um, and be able to identify which pieces are um, open source, which pieces are um, licensed, and which pieces are um, original um, um, source code. And then the, the second thing you have to be able to do is identify load testing. And so you have to identify how many people can go on the subscription model. You can't do that early enough. Um, when it comes to trying to sell the, the SaaS model. Because chances are, and my experience in SaaS, is that a lot of, if it does well, it's going to outgrow the entrepreneur's um, opportunity to service that marketplace. And so you're going to need partners and you're going to need bigger players to do that. And so um, all these things are crucial from the very beginning of your building your SaaS model. I hope that answered the question. So, Steve, if people are interested in learning more, how can they get in touch? If anyone's interested, you go to www.emergeconsole.com and just book some free time to talk to me. And then we'll talk about your business and what your goals are. And then we can get into what um, what I I can do. My favorite clients are ones that I can build a win-win relationship with and be their client, their console for a long time until they um, hopefully successfully exit. The Business of Tech is written and produced by me, Dave Sobel, under ethics guidelines posted at businessof.tech. Like the content? Support the show at patreon.com slash mspradio or buy our Why Do We Care merch at businessof.tech. If you want to reach our listeners, visit mspradio.com slash engage. of the MSP Radio Network.